Can we talk something else? Can, can we talk about something else? Hello, out there. I've always avoided cold cases, thinking there wouldn't be enough story to tell without a heavy dose of what the perpetrator was all about. And in a cold case, that part, along with an arrest and some form of closure, is missing. But you know what else is missing? In general, when it comes to true crime, at times, for me at least, and maybe you feel this way too, What's missing is any redeeming quality in dredging up the horrors of the past. It can get a little, how you say, gross, exploitative. And it's not that I'm shy to dance with the devil, it's just I prefer to do it without his hands gripping my butt cheeks, stuffing his forked tongue down my throat and spinning it so as to pirouette me through each episode. Researching, writing, speaking, murder can get a little dizzying. It's easy to forget that this is real life when pouring through crime stories for a so-called good one to use on the next episode. And it takes a little more than making your voice quiver on a podcast or covering your mouth in mock horror for your YouTube thumbnail with your fucking hat on backwards to keep things kosher. Shed out the juice. I'm not... (laughs) And, you know, I got to thinking that there are so many cold cases out there that actually need attention drawn to them. And really, what's more compelling, more interesting, more disturbing than learning of a crime that's yet to be solved? It's a win-win, is what I'm trying to say. This Dark Topic Cold offering is going to be just fabulous, guys. Real good, feel-good stuff. Guilt-free murder porn. You know, call the kids in. Break out the milk duds and gummy bears. And I'm kidding. You're not going to want to do that. Dark Topic Cold will become an occasional offering here on this podcast. And despite the name, I've actually felt myself warmed by the opportunity to share the stories of those who have yet to receive justice. It feels wholly worthwhile to in some small way preserve their memory and maybe keep the mystery of their dark fate along with my own from swirling away into obscurity. Welcome to Dark Topic Cold. I'm your host, Jack Luna. This is a true crime still happening. The Sims 66. Three and a half decades before The Sims debuted as a popular video game in February of 2000, There were many families living in real life that that game could have been based upon, one of them being the Sims family in 66, doing everything almost robotically as expected for the time, day in and day out. A bird's eye view over their home would have shown dad going off to work each morning, mom whistling around the house happily completing her chores, the kids, three girls of varying ages, off to school. Bye-bye, dears. I got the day off. Dinner will be ready when you get home. 
Everyone gathers in the evening for dinner before the two eldest girls are off to babysit or date while mom and dad cuddle on the couch watching TV. Their youngest daughter plays in her room as the sun goes down. A shadow outside her window, furiously masturbating. Whoa, wait a minute, that's uh, not part of the game. That's not The Sims. Wait, what an unbelievable glitch. What's up with this? <laughs> Let me reset. This isn't a game that we're playing here. October 22nd of 1966, a Saturday. The weather is mild, the sky cloudy, and threatening rain throughout the day. Though clearing in the evening, much to the relief of those planning to attend the open-air college football game this night. As the sun sets, a light breeze rolls through what was then still a place with a small-town feel in Tallahassee, Florida. It is a time when bad news isn't sought after, a place where people are more interested in feeling good. So it's unlikely that word of a disaster in some place called South Wales, where an elementary school in the mining village of Aberfan had been wiped out by a godless landslide, killing 116 children the day before, is at top of mind. There are no smartphones, no 24-hour news cycle. There's a chance nobody is talking about the tragedy at all. Festivities in this place in Tallahassee are ramping up in preparation for the big game. The Seminoles will be battling Mississippi State in what will be a televised game and a chance to show off to the country the spirit of Florida State University, a spirit that's especially strong where the Sims live. Close to the stadium and university, their lives are deeply entwined with the Seminole spirit. Seminole meaning wild people, referring to the tribe of Native Americans whom resisted fiercely their land becoming a playground for new world conquerors but that's besides the point you win some you lose some and sometimes you get your identity scalped away and slapped on the side of a football helmet for good measure 42 year old robert sims had earned his phd from florida state and was well aware of the trials and tribulations of the world a smart man his job was the assistant director of the state department of education specializing in computers he and his wife, Helen, 34, had married back in Meridian, Mississippi when she was just 17. They'd followed Robert's career to the Pleasantville of 1960s Florida. And isn't that fun how on this day their hometown college football team would be facing their new home's story squadron. The Sims have three children, all girls, all Jays. Jenny, 17, Judy, 16, and Joy, 12. Judy has commitments to babysit tonight as the parents of the children she's to watch are going to go to the game. But the eldest daughter, Jenny, is going to catch the game herself with friends. Parents, Robert and Helen, plan on watching the game at home with their youngest daughter, 12-year-old Joy. The whole town seems to absorb into the stadium after Saturday dinner is done. And soon enough, the Sims home at 641 Muriel Court is quiet save the low sound of the game on the television and the sounds of the actual game in person reverberating throughout the darkness towards their home from the stadium that can be seen from their front yard. Darkness, it falls, and the soft yellow lights of the bungalow come to life. As a result, and the scene is just about as cozy as can be, as sim-like as one could ever ask for in a mid-60s suburb on a clear, warm fall night in 1966. 
except for the shadow, furiously masturbating, outside of 12-year-old Joy's bedroom window. To be fair, that might not be tonight, but it had been last week, when the Sims had become one of many households in the area, suddenly afflicted by a virus we all know in real life as a peeping Tom. The Sims bungalow, with an open, stylish, two-car shelter attached, sits a little ways back from Muriel Street, and would be absorbed by greenery if not meticulously maintained. It backs onto a ravine and a patch of forest where neighborhood kids enjoy using the Sims tree swing back there, as well as playing tag, hide-and-seek, frisbee, and red rover. It's a close-knit community where word will travel fast when something weird is happening, and it turns out a lot of weird is happening in this place at this time. A lot of weird is happening everywhere at any place at any time. It just comes out of the woodwork. It just becomes obvious when something horrific happens, and we have to put a magnifying glass upon it. Despite the whole nobody lock your doors, nobody lock your windows sentiment many still live by at this time, there's something out there driven to change all that this night. And it will. In this simulation, in this way in which we're looking back at the past and trying to imagine what went down, there's a distant bowl of light outside of the Sims' house. It's surrounded by perfectly spaced street lamps and quiet abodes, including the Sims' house. Neighbors of the Sims, around 10.30, will hear screams and a few fireworks go off. Nothing unusual, as the home team is one around this time, though as a shadow escapes the Sims' house, all that's left inside is lost. Now, come on, let's try something different. Let's, let's go in the house to 641 Muriel. Come on in with me. Don't bother with your shoes. It doesn't matter. This crime scene gets trashed in a bit anyways. The cops are going to make coffee and sit around smoking cigarettes while strangers waltz in and out like it's a open house. Some will even steal possessions of the Sims to keep as souvenirs. It's a time like that. You know stories like this. Can you imagine, though, a time where citizens and law enforcement are so uncouth, so graceless, as a result of having been spoiled by a reality where things like this simply do not happen in their neighborhoods. And I'm getting ahead of myself, uh, where things like this, I said, things like this being horrific murder. I mean, that's why we're here, right? But a time where crime scenes became a circus, a freak show. Cops snapping pictures alongside the newspaper man and a group of seminal fans who just happened to be driving by, seeing the flashing lights, and figured they'd come on in to check out what all the hubbub's about. It's a party, right? We just won 10 zip. We killed them. Oh, fuck, it looks like someone killed them in here, too. That's what we're dealing with here. So, yeah, come on in. Don't be shy. We'll get in here early. Let's have a peek before the eldest Jenny gets home and sounds the alarm. She's due back here around 11. The other sister, she'll be babysitting till midnight. The third, the youngest, 12-year-old Joy, is back here with mom and dad somewhere. Right back there in the master bedroom. But come in, come in, come on. Don't bother with your shoes. There's some smokes and an ashtray in front of the flashing television there. Anyone want to smoke? A coffee and a tea here too. Cute little cup on a saucer. Still warm. Mm, not bad. Mm, I prefer less sugar myself. But that's nice. Yeah, the game's over. 10 nothing. Look at the TV there. Fuck, they're still celebrating. I can hear them outside and on the TV. That ain't that neat. Great defense from Florida State tonight. Smothering. Very 60s in the house here, huh? The decor. Beige carpets, reds and browns throughout. I like this style. 
I've considered decorating my garage 60s style. Yeah, it's pretty neat. Anyways, you can see some money on that dresser over there, and if you open the hutch here, there's a coin collection. Valuable. I read there's some jewelry around here too, though maybe one of the neighbors grabbed it as a souvenir. Oh, wait, 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 that's not possible. We're here first, I forgot. You might notice there's no signs of struggle. No evidence of forced entry at the door. This place looks like they just got up and left. You know, like a little time capsule. The Sims, oh yeah, they're no, they're dead back there. They probably let whoever did them in, in. Speaking of, let's just go. Let's go head to the master bedroom. I believe that's where, oh yeah, yeah. Yeah, look, see, they're all back here. And that's enough of that, right? I mean, this is getting silly. Though I'm sure you'll agree I have a future as a realtor specializing in murder homes or stigmatized properties, as they're now known, don't you know? But yes, Robert and Helen, along with their youngest daughter, Joy, are all back here in the master, and uh, they're dead. Dad, you could see him there on the bed. His hands are bound behind his back, and he's been shot in the head. Robert Sims is still alive. You may hear the occasional story of him, but he will never come back. He will not be here for much longer. Um, I'd say enjoy it, but there's nothing joyous at all about Oh, speaking of joy, there she is there on the floor. Her mother lays bound beside her, shot on the shot in the head, it looks like, twice? Yeah, twice. There's a stab wound in her leg. It appears Helen managed to put up a fight here at some point. Um, I'm deducing a few things, but we'll get to it. Helen, like her fading husband, she's still clinging to life. And though she will live nine more days, as I've read, she will never regain consciousness. You got to think that because the father has little damage to him, just the shots to the head, that they were coerced into getting bound by somebody maybe they knew by letting them into the house and uh, had their arms bound behind their back. And then the father was dispatched at first. Mother Helen probably fought because she appears to have been stabbed in the leg here before being shot. And then we have 12-year-old Joy on the floor like I said, next to her mother, as you see, um, it appears she may have been the target. I said I'd cut the shit out, but I'm continuing with this asshole behavior. But, you know, when in Rome, she is bound with her hands behind her back like her parents. She, uh, Joy, 12-year-old Joy, is shot in the head as well. You see that bruising on her face there. Uh, that, to me, that indicates she has been beaten first before her death. The real indicator is that her underwear is around her ankles. And she's been stabbed half a dozen times in the stomach there. Joy, unlike her parents, is dead. All right. Well, that's the crime scene. And uh, I just wanted to show you guys this before all the fucking people come in here and, and muck it all up. But currently, around 10.30 p.m. of October 22nd, 1966, in a small neighborhood of Tallahassee, Florida... We have a mother and father still clinging to life, bound. Father on the bed, mother on the floor, breathing mildly, and their uh, 12-year-old daughter clearly dead beside them. She looks to have been the target joy here. I'm going to have a sip of beer real quick, because uh, <clears throat> I need a way to keep my soul in my body, <clears throat> not have it ripped away by this pirouetting Satan. The eldest daughter, Norma Janine, or Jenny, Sims, discovers this horror at around 11.15 p.m. of October 22nd, 1966. 
This is a time without 911 call, emergency systems. So Jenny runs to the phone book and calls the only place she can think to, the local funeral home. And I've skipped the horror of a 17-year-old girl finding her mother and father and youngest sister like this. I feel like we've been through enough already. Russell Beavis and his teenage son, Rocky, answer the phone at the funeral home at the same time from different phones. That's the way it was back then, you know, a phone would ring, you'd have a landline and you'd maybe have a couple. I think that the father would probably be downstairs putting makeup on a corpse and Rocky might be upstairs uh, replacing flowers for the next day's mourners. Rocky recognizes Jenny's voice. She is a classmate of his, though they don't hang out much in the same circles, but he knows who Jenny is. He knows the Sims family, as does his father. And um, they hear Jenny frantically begging them to please come, please help. Her address is 641 Mural. Yes, Jenny, we know where you are. And uh, Jenny says, quote, something terrible has happened. Please come. The funeral director and his son, they arrive at the house and they see the gruesome scene in the master bedroom. They do the first thing that occurs to them. They begin untying the three victims. This is the first disruption of the crime scene but it only gets worse. As I've mentioned, there will eventually be neighbors, even strangers off the street, walking around the house, milling about like those morons at the Capitol building. Remember that shit? You know what's going on in here? Cops stepping aside. Oh, excuse me. Anybody want a coffee? A coffee's on. Later, the man taking fingerprints from the front door gives up. There are sets upon sets upon sets of fingerprints on the door. You know, you got the... DNA, the genetic profile of the surrounding neighborhood on this fucking door pressed in on each other as one big fingerprint like, oh yeah you know who was here? The whole fucking town. In the following days as word spreads about the murders gun sales shoot through the roof. Locksmiths see their safes fill when all the weaponry sells out from stores, a trend begins where people start buying water guns and fill them with ammonia as a way to fend off the phantom killer or killers. It's a mystery who did this, or why it was done. It's such a nice, all-American, God-fearing family this has happened to. Halloween is cancelled. Canine units patrol the streets for weeks afterwards. This is a big fucking deal. Children are terrified. Joy was a popular student and well-known in her community. She'd been going door-to-door, selling Christmas cards for her church in the days leading to her vicious murder. So many residents had just interacted with the sweet 12-year-old with the bright smile. This crime has shaken the community badly. And the truth is that it will never recover. Investigators try to pick up the pieces, but Tallahassee's innocence has been broken beyond repair. Want to learn a new language? Well, then Rosetta Stone is for you. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on a desktop or as an app, and it truly immerses you in the language you want to learn. Rosetta Stone has been the trusted expert for 30 years with millions of users and 25 languages offered. It has fast language acquisition. It's an intuitive process. It helps you pick up language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. It's designed for long-term retention, Rosetta Stone is. They have the speech recognition feature, built-in true accent. It gives you feedback in your pronunciation. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. There's an amazing value with Rosetta Stone. 
a lifetime membership, all 25 languages, and offered here for 50% off. It's a real steal. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, Dark Topic listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today. Today. The first lead comes when the Tallahassee police station begins getting some interesting phone calls. It turns out that the well-liked and respected Helen Sims, whom I failed to yet mention was a Sunday school teacher, as well as her church's secretary, had recently vacated a position at her church for unknown reasons. Well, I know why, and I'll get to that in a second. Helen was adored by those in her parish. She was a skilled pianist who would often draw a crowd whenever she sat down in front of the church organ. It turns out there was another organ regularly being fiddled with at any given time back in the pastor's quarters. Scandal was about to be exposed with news of Helen, her husband, and daughter's brutal deaths. As the phone calls coming in were all made by nervous women, believing Tallahassee's most celebrated and revered resident might have been threatened by Helen's recent resignation from the First Baptist Church. C.A. Roberts, the pastor in question, beloved shepherd of Tallahassee's most prominent First Baptist Church, is the first suspect we'll take a look at here. From Waco, Texas, Dr. Cecil Albert Roberts took Tallahassee's fervent religious scene over sometime in the late 50s, becoming Tallahassee's Man of the Year in 63, then later Florida's Man of the Year. The Reverend has the look of Matt Damon and the talented Mr. Ripley, and like that character, there is a hidden darkness, which comes to light when tips start pointing his way. Guilt-riddled women whom have been having affairs with the Reverend begin coming forward. They are worried they'll be looked at as suspects themselves, motivated to snuff Helen out, as she had recently discovered the Reverend's secrets. Some believe Helen Sims had been propositioned for sex by Reverend Roberts and had denied him. Now with these crazy phone calls from a harem of nutty women worried they'd be accused, investigators believe they have a kind of cult leader on their hands whom likely had the power to influence his subjects to do his bidding. It's about as scandalous as a situation can get back then. This reverend is married. Oh, a pillar of the community. Oh my God. Something which I can't understate. In this era, men like C.A. Roberts had tremendous power. They were treated like rock stars. And apparently the reverend was handing out backstage passes to the single ladies, even the taken ones, to join him for private kneeling practice in his quarters. Whatever that means. Oh yeah, blowjobs. The Reverend is slowly disgraced as word gets around. People believe he committed this triple homicide because there was motive. Helen Sims had quit her job as church secretary just days before the murders, and it's obvious she'd been killed because she knew too much. The fact that Joy had been tortured while the parents were dispatched of added an even darker element to this whole mess. The Reverend was clearly a sex-crazed beast a wolf in sheep's clothing that had been ravaging the wives of Tallahassee for years until Helen Sims had put her foot down. The case is closed in many residents' minds when a black light is brought into the First Baptist Church and shone around the reverend's quarters. 
It's obvious that the room had been moonlighting as a fertility clinic. One man couldn't possibly be responsible for the amount of seminal fluid splashed around this den of decency. Reverend Roberts, he has an alibi, being the Florida State Seminoles, I mean Seminoles, hired prayer man. He'd been at the game that night that the Sims had been slaughtered. In fact, there was videotape showing him on the sidelines through every quarter of the game. And though rumors swirled that he had disappeared at halftime and returned with scratches on his face, a different suit on his body, this was just a case of people making shit up. You see, getting canceled has always been a thing, except back then you couldn't watch it happen to yourself online and make it fucking worse by responding to it. You just left town. You changed your name, you found a new church, and started painting a new town. Pearly white. Although the disgraced Reverend C.A. Roberts was said to have had a cult following that was so devoted, it wouldn't have been out of the question had he instructed one of them to destroy Helen Sims that thy will would be done. This suspect has since been deemed fairly implausible. As one follower of the Reverend and neighbor of the Sims family said, quote, In some ways it just doesn't add up, but in other ways... It adds up perfectly. End quote. Investigators drove every route that they could find from the stadium to the Sims house, and there was no way he'd have had enough time to drive, kill three people in this manner, then return to the game to continue duties as team chaplain. He's on tape. It wasn't him. Though still quite odd that these women would be so concerned they could be implicated that they called themselves in, exposing their affairs, they clearly thought it possible the Reverend had played a part in the Sims' murders. Maybe conversations they had while getting done doggy style by a reverend in the First Baptist Church, the largest church in Tallahassee. (laughs) Just banging everybody's wives. And, you know, single chicks, young chicks, like, whatever, what the fuck. It's supposed to be like the epitome of, of good and one of the nastiest things is happening in the back office. And Helen was aware of this. It's cold, 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 frigid stuff. And you think this would be enough, that having a suspect as high profile as C.A. Roberts would make for a compelling enough piece of information to end this true crime tale on. But the Reverend, in my opinion, is the least likely of the bunch. Not long after the murders, a man named Robert Howells, having just been married to a woman named Peggy, is driving with his new bride from Tallahassee down to a place called Alligator Point to honeymoon. When Robert, a scary, bearded, bespectacled, and serious man, begins admitting to his new wife that he was responsible for the Sims family murders. He regales Peggy with a tale of him murdering these three people as they drive through the woods during what should be a magic time in their lives. He says he got into an argument with Helen Sims at a grocery store followed her home to 641 Muriel Street, then came back that night to kill her, while the town was distracted by the football game. He claims to have killed the daughter in front of the parents before executing them. The story obviously scares Peggy, which turns out to be the point. Later, when she divorces Robert Howells, she goes to the police to tell them what Rob had admitted so many years back. Robert Howells passes a polygraph and falls into a category of men in Tallahassee whom, after the Sims' mysterious murders, began drunkenly telling their wives they'd done it. A bunch of guys were doing this. 
in order to scare their wives into complacency in the relationship that was kind of falling apart for them as their drinking, you know, got worse. They were using this as a way to scare their wives. There's a lot of good people being exposed on these side roads during the investigation of the Sims murders in 66 Tallahassee. And that's something I'll broach a little more later. How about Tommy Fulgham? Let's talk about him. He was 15 at the time of the murders and living within striking distance of the Sims house, two blocks away. Tommy had successfully avoided police questioning. Everyone was being questioned. Everyone was being tracked down. But he was a good-looking kid, small in stature at the time, and there really was no reason back in October of 66 to look too closely at the freshman student. Tommy will eventually head off to the Navy, build up his body through weight training, and become a mentally unstable beast by the time his military career ends. He's living in Atlanta later on in the 70s, claiming to be the devil as a result of being afflicted by paranoid schizophrenia. The reason Tommy Fulgham is being brought up here is because in the late 70s, he murdered his girlfriend in their apartment, cut her hands off, removed her liver, and put it in a jar. When asked why he did all this, Tommy told investigators that he believed the sacrifice would chain the devil for a thousand years. Oh, and that he was the devil. Tommy Fulgham becomes a suspect up until his fingerprints are put up against the pages of prints taken from the Sims' home, and his did not match any of them. Just another wild character out of the woodwork that frames this long-gone cold case. But there is at least one more situation here that I alluded to in the beginning. Well, alluded is just a big word I like to use. Alluded is a stretch. I believe twice I mentioned a shadow whacking off at Joy's window. So let's take care of that before I walk away, waving, slipping off the stage as I go. No doubt, because this is Dark Topic Cold. All right, I know you get it. Ice, right? It's just not that funny. That's why you didn't laugh. Noted. <laughs> God damn it. That does bother me, though. When people say, like, oh, you didn't get it. You didn't get it. That's a joke. I'm just joking. It's like, yeah, we get it. It's just a thing you said that wasn't funny. That's why we're not laughing. Like, we get it. It's not that fucking complicated what you said. It's just not funny. Oh, come on. I'm just joking around. It's like, oh, well, you think so, but you just sound like a fucking goof to me, which is hopefully not what I sound like to you. <sighs> right now. Mary Charles LeJoy Fox, as she'll come to be known, uh, 20 years or so after The Sims 66, she comes forward and wants to talk to investigators. Charlie, as she liked to be called, had been known back then as a weirdo in the area um, uh, when she'd been in her late teens when the murders occurred. And she had a reputation as an outcast. Charlie had been adopted and mistreated by her adoptive mother. She never really fit in. She had shitty clothes. She had no idea why they even adopted her. It was just like um, they adopted her just to have someone to shit on the whole time. And she was known to have a morbid fascination with death because she maybe wanted to die herself. She maybe felt dead from the start. She started breaking into the Beavis funeral home that we uh, visited for a moment there with a the phone call from Jenny when she found her parents in such a way and her, and her younger sister. She had been breaking Charlie into the Beavis funeral home on more than one occasion to check out the dead. And this was a well-known thing, although people didn't like to talk about negatives too much back then. She had been stealing funeral shrouds that she would use to sleep under back at home. Just a very strange character. 
and one who was briefly looked at in 66 because she stood out so much as being a very unsettling type to be around. Looking at her photos, you'd find livelier eyes on a scarecrow, just to give you an idea. And it didn't help that her boyfriend was the shadow at 12-year-old Joy's window before the murders, at many windows in the mid-60s, and he lived just beyond the ravine out back of the Sims' house. His name was Vernon Fox, is Vernon Fox, an outcast himself, and recently discharged at the time from the Air Force for mental health reasons. He was having a tough time growing up in Tallahassee, just as Charlie, the weirdo, you know, who fucking sleeping underneath a funeral shroud at nights, just as she had, and they bonded over this. Vernon's father was head of the criminology department at Florida State University, and Vernon felt he couldn't live up to the expectations of his father, who was a fucking huge drunk. And in his early 20s, he was Vernon when the murders happened. He's living at home again, a literal stone's throw from the Sims house. And on this night of October 26, 1966, he and his fucking wacko girlfriend, Charlie, of course, are not at the football game because they don't belong. Rather, they claim to be at the drive-in watching the Munsters movie, which must have been a thrill to see something on screen that strongly resembled the two, truly. I couldn't do a better job of describing these two as to say they look like they could be cast for the Munsters movie. Vernon had been the one Helen Sims had caught at her daughter Joy's window a week or so before the murders. Charlie, who lived close by too, had been jealous at the time that Vernon was looking at other girls. Not so much disturbed by the peeping that he was doing, so much as just jealous. She even later states to investigators that the girls were so ugly too. And this type of sentiment gives a glimpse into Charlie's own ugliness and narcissism. For the record, the Sims girls are better looking than Charlie, and I only mention this to show how delusional, self-important, and flat out of her mind, Charlie is. Charlie, 20 years later, is recently divorced from Vernon, whom she had married, then had been cared for as this spooky girl that he knew from his younger days. He cared for her until their recent divorce before she went to the cops in Tallahassee 20 years later. And it seemed that Charlie wanted to collect on a $10,000 reward she'd heard rumor of. So she's back in Tallahassee to implicate Vernon back in the late 80s. And she's saying, he likes little girls, you know. He really liked that little joy. Charlie goes on to play games with these investigators who are like, where the fuck did you come from? This is a cold case of 20 years. Why are you implicating yourself? Why are you here? Oh, for $10,000, right? This is an out of nowhere, voluntary, six-hour chat with these investigators about a 20-year-old cold case. And Charlie starts saying things to them like, well, what if Vernon was in the house that night? What if I was in the house? What if I thought I was going to lose my only friend in the world, in Vernon, so I did something about it? You know, meaning Vernon may have been in danger of being arrested for peeping on The Sims. So Charlie maybe got rid of the problem for him? What if there was a way I could tell y'all what really happened without implicating myself? And what if that meant I could walk out of here with $10,000? So you heard her there from the documentary 641 Mural Court, which you can find a link to in the show notes. 
But she's like, what would happen to me in that situation? And this is when the interview comes to an abrupt halt as the investigators fucking blow it and answer her honestly. They tell Charlie that the best they could do is have her put in a mental hospital if she admits to this. In this uh, hypothetical situation, Charlie, if you tell us that you did this and that Vernon was involved or whatever, we'll arrest him. We can't give you 10 grand, um, but we're going to throw you in a fucking mental institution. And this is when Charlie clams up. But I think it's clear that we have a pretty damn good suspect here. Fuck. Jesus fucking Christ. Fuck. Yeah, I just knocked a whole fucking beer over, but whatever. I'm trying to lay off the the drinks, um, but I will drink when I'm recording. It's been not going so well here. Anyways, Vernon, he'd been the one peeping on the youngest Sims girl, Joy, and he'd been spotted doing so just days before the murders. His crazy girlfriend, Charlie, is confided in. And as she says in her impromptu voluntary interview 20 years later, Maybe she came up with a very simple plan. Of all the suspects, these two stand out, quite boldly. With easy access to the Sims house through the woods that separated theirs and this known peeper's parents' home, with a crazy girlfriend in Charlie who later all but admits outright she had something to do with it, hiding only behind the word hypothetical in her frustrating near-confession once she finally lost Vernon 20 years after the murders, Again, in the show notes, you'll find a link to this excellent documentary on the case done by Florida State University students. And from the interviews of those closest to this case, the following explanation of the mystery of that night goes something like this. In my mind, and theirs as well, I've thrown a few things in that I believe myself too, so try this on for size. A week before the murders, Vernon Fox is spotted peeping in 12-year-old Joy Sims's window. On October 22, 1966, a killer or killers is welcomed into the Sims' home. The Sims would have known Vernon. Everybody knew Charlie. While most of Tallahassee is distracted by the football game, the parents are bound and then shot. While 12-year-old Joy Sims is bound, beaten about the face, stabbed six times in the stomach before being executed herself, not to mention having her pants pulled down, her panties around her ankles. If Vernon and Charlie are responsible, then perhaps Charlie, this weird girl obsessed with death at the time, and Vernon, the weird boy obsessed with little girls and looking in fucking windows to uh, jerk off and, you know, gaze at them, it's possible that it ran into more than just getting rid of something that was a threat to put Vernon into jail for a period of time which would have left Charlie alone. Maybe Charlie, jealous of Vernon's attraction to Joy, Jealous of this perfect family that she never had, motivated to keep Vernon from being taken away from her, had Vernon come along to help bind the Sims family, before Charlie went wild and let off all of her sufficient steam, much of it venting on poor, sweet Joy, whom had seemingly been focused upon, there being a sexual component with her underwear being pulled down, like, is this what you want, Vernon? Go ahead, take it then, it's right here, which he doesn't do, before Charlie stabs the little girl in the stomach, then puts her like her already incapacitated parents, out with a couple shots to the head. It's the best I got. Or the worst thing I can think of based on what we've been left in the cold with. And 
that'll do it, I guess. I'm hoping to secure some interviews for this style of episode in the future, which will help some. Unfortunately for me, halfway through this recording, it got very cold here. And uh, dousing my legs with Bud Light didn't help. I gotta get an office inside my house, but I can't smoke inside. So that's never gonna happen. Um, It just got so fucking cold here, and I started knocking beer over, and it's just a real mess, so... Um, I'm sorry about that. It's very disrespectful, but I, I, I really tried hard on that and it didn't show <laughs> because of all that hijinks. Here's the thing. When a crime like this occurs, and this is what struck me, is none of our secrets are safe. As long as it's possible your neighbor could be brutally murdered in a mysterious fashion, you know, your secrets aren't safe. If you have secrets, you might want to move to the woods because they'll be looking at the guy across the street or the girl across the street when the lady or the guy in the corner ends up in a fucking garbage can. Just a heads up, if you're doing anything nefarious out there, you're never safe, you know? You keep your mouth shut as much as you want, but at any moment, someone around you could have something mysterious, something that turns into a cold case, or that needs to be solved, happen. And they're going to look deep into you. So, you got secrets, get out in the woods. Now... Nice cock doors lock, stay fair to. Anyways, a high-level support shout-out over there on Patreon. That's www.patreon.com slash darktopic. I'm doing tons of work over there. You can get it on Apple Plus if you're listening on Apple. Um, a shout-out to Nicole Stasco. Thank you, Nicole. Very thankful for the amount of people that have come over to support on Patreon. And um, things are going quite well. Uh... This was the debut of Dark Topic Cold. I hope maybe you enjoyed. And um, I hope to do maybe one of these a month going forward. I have a ton of cold cases that have been put on my plate. And there are some families that want to speak to me as well. So there will be some interviews and and all that coming up in the future, I hope. I was inspired by uh, my favorite podcaster, Jordan Bonaparte of the Nighttime Podcast. You need to check out the Nighttime Podcast for his recent series, um, Justice for Sia Van Wyck. It is an unbelievable story about a little girl who got hit by a combine in Nova Scotia, and initially the parents were just beating themselves up over it, and he talks to the mother, he talks to the father, and it turns out a lot fucking more was going on, and the person driving the combine was a maniac. Uh, you got to check this out. But anyways, I was inspired by this, not just by that, but by Jordan in general in um, his interviews with people um, and his coverage of cases that are that are somewhat that are cold sometimes, you know. And I want to get involved in that way. And I explained a lot of that in the beginning too. I uh, I just want to kind of branch out a bit into that that section that I've that I've always been um, a little hesitant to get into because I didn't think I could tell that story. And I don't know if I prove that I can here. <laughs> I really don't. <laughs> but next time I'm hoping to have somebody to interview. So um, it'll make it a little bit more serious and more um, impactful. And uh, speaking of favorite people, I want to share with you one of the, I was going to say funnest. And I keep telling my kids funnest is not a word. Most enjoyable experience of I've, I've had podcasting. 
the f- most I've ever laughed on an episode, despite how brutal the crime is that we're talking about. I've been doing episodes of Tales from the Bottom Down with my good friend Deadbug, who is going to get into the true crime podcasting world here shortly, and I'll, I'll link you to that when the time comes. But um, we record once a month together and do this uh, do this this thing called Tales from the Bottom Down. And uh, right now I'm going to play you a clip from it. You did hear us together previously, but if you do want to get this regularly, you can go to Deadbug's Patreon. That's uh, patreon.com slash deadbug for $5 a month. You can get this. Or it's also a part of my $13 tier on Patreon, which includes um, the monthly monster and uh, chats there with, with Kent. Tons of stuff that we're doing on the side. This is this is the way that things have gone uh, these days for for myself and 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 ours like Deadbug. Anyways, I want to give you a laugh possibly, or just maybe make you want to unsubscribe from me completely at the end here. This is uh, my favorite podcasting moment I think ever, but it is the most I've ever laughed. And I just at the end here want to possibly share a laugh with you. So I'm going to play that clip now, and and I will see you real soon. Eyes cocked, doors locked, stay paranoid. I'll talk at you real soon. Thank you so much for listening. Hope you enjoy. How does he not have blood all over him when there's so much blood on her and everywhere? It seems impossible that there'd be no blood on him. It appears he's he's cleaned himself at some point, which is odd considering how they found him attempting to resuscitate a deader-than-dead body. Like, did he stop to wash his hands in the middle of such a crisis? Why would he stop to do that? Why would he stop to clean himself off? But, but is this some sort of ruse? Is he pulling a scam on these officers here and he's just pretending? That's what they start to think. And that's what they say when they, they you know, they begin to interrogate him. And they quickly realize that Fidel is so drunk that asking him questions is worthless. So they just let him run his mouth. They just let him talk. They stay quiet and let him run. It goes, there's an interrogation video where he's just fucking going on. Now I'm going to come at you here, Jack, with a different scenario or a different reality. And I knew this guy and he were, um, I don't know if they were like a Mexican or South American or something. And he always used to wear this uh, white white jeans and a white jean jacket and a white t-shirt. Right. And, and I, I swear to fucking God, this guy would never, ever get fucking... It was always white. If I okay. wore fucking white in two seconds, there'd be like a shit stain at the back. There'd be a fucking spaghetti stain at the front. Like some people can't wear white. So maybe this guy is just one of those guys, you know, like he just, he can wear white. Well. Maybe, man. Yeah, you mean, you might be right about Fidel here. All I'm saying is let's give Fidel the benefit of the doubt here mm-hmm. and say innocent before proven guilty. It's good to have a two-man show here. It's it's you're correct. You know what's true though, right? I mean, he he might be. Uh, we we don't know the circumstances, but continue, I'm just I was just thinking of this my friend with the white because I mean that's a bit fucking much for me style wise. It's not my thing, but so continue. He, he at this point we're assuming there's something wrong, but he might be just innocent. But continue, Jack. Yeah, absolutely. So Fidel, you know, in his his blazing white T-shirt, is telling them that Maria she likes rough sex, me. And she likes to get a little crazy, me. You know, when she drinks. And that's, she wants him to do this arm thing, me. And he doesn't like doing it, but it seems to hurt. And she says to keep going. It doesn't matter if she's bleeding or not, man. Just keep going. And they're like, what the fuck? This arm? What arm thing? What do you mean? So arm thing as in arm up the pussy? Yeah. Holy. So she's like getting fucking fisted. That's right. Armed. He says he goes up to his elbow. Fuck. And, <clears throat> And even if she's bleeding, she tells him to keep going. 
and he doesn't like doing it, but she's more sexually experienced than he is, and I guess this is what some people are into. So, And when she's drunk, you know, this is what she wants. So he, he was giving it to her. He's just pleasuring her, Jack. He's giving her what she desires. That's what he says, yeah. Which is an arm up the pussy, right That's up right. to the elbow. But not on his white, the cuff of his white T-shirt, because as you already explained, such men don't like to get their T-shirts dirty. Correct. The rules of a stylish Latino male. <laughs> but, <laughs> I mean, this is so messed up. Do you know if he was wearing a white jean jacket? <laughs> no, he was wearing a white T-shirt, though. <laughs> he might. I don't think he was okay, wearing a white okay. jean jacket. Um, so <laughs> Keep it together for the kids, Jack. So Fidel claims that on this occasion, she's really crazy for it. And even though she started bleeding... She she wanted a bottle in her, then a then a straightening iron shoved in her too. Like it was getting out of control. I would have to agree with you, Jack. And uh, she even threw up at one point, but she was still demanding more. You know, it was out of control, man. They're in the master bedroom closet after he ripped the fucking door off of it. Like what a wild night of sexual activity. This is a messed up story. I mean, this it's beyond messed up, but. <laughs> Children leave the room. Oh, you're a little late. This is late, but no, I, I, I'm sure the children, the parents listening with their children, appreciate the attempt. So, be responsible, adults. Be responsible. So this is fucked up. I mean, this is so he's literally saying that this girl wanted this young woman wanted him to shove his arm. Yeah, up a pussy. You know, Jack. I consider myself a very experienced man in the art of pleasuring women. And I have never come across this in my life. No. That is beyond weird. Oh, God. I mean, fisting is not my thing by any means. Um, I don't get it. it. It's a big turnoff for me. But the, the, the idea of the whole arm going in up to the elbow doesn't even seem physically possible. Actually, in this situation, it, it isn't. Well, it certainly isn't without the prospect of, of killing the individual. We'll get to that right now. So he's like, I don't want, didn't want to seem like a pussy, you know. So he just kept going at her until finally I was like, baby, baby, all right. And she's unresponsive. And that's when he called 911. It's at this point in the interview that the station gets a call from the coroner who wants to speak to a detective. And the coroner shares that Maria has had her insides ripped out through her vagina and anus there's no sign of a baby. They thought that maybe this was a botched fucking abortion. That's not what has happened here. Oh, my God. This looks like to just be a heinous fucking crime. And heinous. when Fidel is confronted with this, he comes clean. So I'm guessing at this point the investigators know that something dubious has gone on here and that it wasn't consensual. No, actually, Debug, that's a good question because it's kind of funny. I can only imagine, Jack. I'm, I'm holding in the laughter now. Both the detectives say that they're just looking at each other like, holy fuck, when he's telling the story. Fidel's just going off like he's telling a story to the boys about, you know, regular sex shit going on. You know how it is, guys, right? When you fucking shove your old arm into a girl's vagina and she wants it more and more, and they're like, oh, yeah, Fidel. She like it, man. She, li <laughs> she like it, man, when I put my, my whole elbow up her thing, man. She like it, man. Really good, man. You hit the G-spot. 
Uh, <laughs> like the B spot. Holy frakoli. I hit the Z spot, <laughs> Z man. Spot, man. <laughs> I, I call it, tickling her tonsils, man. I call it the B spot because it's like the bowel <laughs> tickling her tonsils. But like the bowel spot. Like he grabbed her fucking oh, bowels. Oh, fuck. And he, he yanked. Like, dude, this is really fucking bad. He, he, he comes clean. He's drunk. He's unable to stop himself from letting the truth out once they give him the information. Like, hey, we know. Um, that this is not exactly as you're saying. And, and I want to say he spills his guts at that this point, but that's a little on the nose. Oh, and in sense that's of, wrong. Though I guess I just said it anyways. I mean, Fidel, he begins blubbering about how much he loved Maria and that she knew. <laughs> I love her, man. I love her, man. She my, she my destiny, man. She my burrito. <laughs> the cheese in her burrito, man. And, and he, he fucking... He's he he makes a point at this point to say I punched the holes in the walls, man. That wasn't Maria, man. It were me, man. All the damage to the apartment, <laughs> the damage to the apartment. Don't put that on her, man. That was me. All the damage. I will cover any cost of the damages, man. I'm a man. I'm a man. <laughs> Don't put that shit on her, man. <laughs> you dis you disrespect my Maria, man. <laughs> and <laughs> that, no, that's true, though. Like he does, he's doing that. He's saying this shit, and uh, <laughs> fucking guy, eh? And they're like, fucking grease ball. They're like, hey, what about? They're like, what about her guts being dragged out through her vagina? Like, who did that though? Oh, that was me, though, man. That wasn't her either, man. That was me as well, man. It weren't her. Don't blame my dear Maria, man. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So, fuck. <laughs> fuck, man. All right, all right, all right. So, <laughs> okay. You're so fucking immature, Jack. Yeah, Just get on with the story. I'm sorry. Give me a, let me light this cigarette. Just hold on. It's like, Jesus Christ. <laughs> okay, man. <laughs> Okay, so he fucking, holy shit. Okay, this is what happened. Fidel is like, we're, I got to stop using that accent for a second. He, <laughs> hey, man, he says that.